Milton Friedman, the prize fighter. Kritika Veriger. In 2002, three months after Milton Friedman turned 90, a celebratory conference was convened at the school that had become synonymous with his ideas. Ben Bernanke, then a member of the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors, delivered a talk at the University of Chicago on depression and recovery. It had been 39 years since Friedman published A Monetary History of the United States, his blockbuster account of how the Fed's missteps caused the Great Depression, and 25 years since he won the Nobel Prize. After Bernanke gave an encomium to Friedman's long and storied career, he was moved to add a flourish, abusing slightly my status as an official representative of the Federal Reserve. Regarding the Great Depression, he told Friedman, you're right. We did it. We're very sorry. But, thanks to you, we won't do it again. It was an extraordinary statement from a leader of the Fed, which Friedman had spent his entire career critiquing. In Bernanke's retelling, Friedman's once a tray argument that the Fed should have aggressively expanded the money supply when people pulled money from banks in 1929 was now practically common sense. The hyperbolic praise from Bernanke, a future Fed chairman, epitomized Friedman's stature as perhaps the most influential economist of the late 20th century. But Milton Friedman was never one for victory laps. He spent the final years of his life mostly complaining, in just about any forum that would have him. In a report published earlier that year, he lamented that the U.S. was a nearly 40% enslaved state because of outsized taxation. In 2004, he told Investors Business Daily that the extremely low interest rates of the new millennium were fundamentally an indication of something wrong. And, just a year before his death, in 2006, he bemoaned the rise of the euro, a big source of problems, not a source of help, and disparaged social security as a Ponzi scheme. His lifelong pugilism didn't persist in spite of his unprecedented success, it may have been the key to it. That's the emergent lesson of Milton Friedman, the last conservative. A new intellectual biography by the Stanford historian Jennifer Burns. Burns, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, now home to Friedman's papers, spent nearly a decade combing through his syllabi, correspondence, drafts, and notes to produce the first full-length biography of Friedman based upon archival research. Despite considerable access to sources, and even Friedman's children, Burns never quite pulls back the veil on her subject psychology. But her exhaustive account of Friedman's underdog decades does illuminate how the field of economics slowly polarized around his work. Friedman's influence is so pervasive today that it can be hard to unpack. His prescriptions informed everything from the end of the mandatory draft to the earned income tax credit, and his theories transformed the economic policies of the US and UK in the last quarter of the 20th century. His extreme conception of free markets also influenced many developing countries' economies during and after the Cold War, often with a mixed legacy of growth and austerity. The way he accomplished all this and more, per Burns's account, was by picking ever-larger fights. In the course of the book, the diminutive economist, who stood just over five feet tall, comes to seem like nothing so much as a welterweight boxer. The son of Jewish immigrants to central New Jersey, Friedman started his PhD in Chicago in 1932, three years into the Great Depression. He had attended Rutgers on a scholarship and planned to become an actuary, but failed the exams and switched his major to economics. 
That's how he met Arthur Burns, another future chairman of the Federal Reserve, but, at the time, a 27-year-old graduate student teaching a class on business cycles. Arthur Burns introduced Friedman to Principles of Economics, the seminal 1890 textbook by the British economist Alfred Marshall, which turned Friedman on to economics potential to answer society's biggest questions. According to Marshall, prices could help explain almost everything, supply, demand, the impact of economic policies, the allocation of resources, the effects of negative externalities such as waste products. Friedman declined a graduate offer in mathematics to start a PhD in Chicago's economics department. It was not without risk, because economics had not yet become what Burns calls the master discipline of the 20th century. The Depression had thrown the field into crisis, and only years later would professional economists become really ensconced in government. Friedman's professors in Chicago were notable iconoclasts, including Frank Knight, a theorist of risk and a crusading anti-socialist, and Jacob Viner, a professor of price theory and an early critic of the federal. The variant of price theory taught at Chicago was so idiosyncratic that Burns refers to it as a revealed truth and its students as converted. In Viner's course, Friedman sat next to one of his few female classmates, Rose Director, whom he married five years later. He arrived at just the right time for the conversion experience of Chicago price theory, which emphasized free markets and pointed skepticism of government regulation. Friedman soon fell in with students who were passionately critical of the fledgling New Deal. They gathered in a dusty storeroom dubbed Room 7 to pour overnight's lectures, and Friedman also read more broadly from the classical liberal canon. He quickly grasped even wider implications for price theory than what he was being taught. Starting from an unassuming place, the quantity theory equation, which links the price level to the amount of money in the economy, he landed on the grander claim that every major inflation was produced by monetary expansion. And he zoned in on fighting inflation as the government's most important task to be carried out by its central bank. This emerging school of thought would be called monetarism. Monetarism was a direct challenge to New Deal liberalism, which prioritized employment over managing inflation. Thus, it also challenged the fiscal revolution of John Maynard Keynes, the British economist whose notions about government spending during recessions animated the New Deal and who was, for many years, the most influential economist in the Anglo-American world. Keynes's Whiggish vision of less work and greater leisure was resonant during times of plenty, but it was vulnerable when inflation reared its head. Friedman's counter-revolution focused on an almost patronizingly simplistic directive for the government, rather than underwrite a welfare state, just try to stabilize the money supply. At one point, he ballparked a whole number target for money supply growth, 4% per year. Positioning himself thus against the economic orthodoxy of the times, Friedman had to be an attack dog from the jump, and he loved it. One early paper, penned in 1934, when he was still a 22-year-old graduate student, attacked the English economist Arthur Pigou so pointedly that Keynes personally wrote the rejection note from the journal he edited. Another early controversy, in 1938, from a paper attacking the American Medical Association as a cartel that artificially inflated doctors' wages, prompted Friedman to remark, there is no significant study in the field of economics whose results are not likely to be used in public controversy. Video from the New Yorker Echo, a pioneer of echolocation for the blind
https slash slash www.newyorkcar.com slash video slash watch slash echo hashtag insid equals underscore cne interlude New Yorker underscore fa9 bbfbbbacb underscore text vc underscore fallback underscore crawl top. The Chicago faculty hired him in 1946, and Friedman wasted no time in waging a guerrilla war to help secure faculty appointments for his former Room 7 gang, as well as sabotaging funding for left-leaning colleagues. Harvard had launched the fiscal revolution, Wisconsin had pioneered progressive reform, and MIT was spreading mathematical techniques, Burns writes. Friedman put Chicago on the map as a fortress of the free market. Its Gothic quadrangles were his haven, even when his early career scholarship was mocked before Congress, in the 50s, and through the 60s, when mere mentions of Friedman's name brought laughter to the room in Harvard seminars. Friedman's appetite for a brawl enlarged Chicago's reputation as a new economics powerhouse, and the journals and institutions of the expanding discipline ate it up. One of Friedman's major opponents in the 60s and 70s was James Tobin, a neo-Keynesian at Yale. At times, Burns writes, it seemed like economics evolved in six-month cycles of Friedman and Tobin reading and rebutting each other's most recent paper. Such rivalry could have taken up most economists' careers, indeed, Tobin is still remembered as a Friedman critic, but he was just one of many adversaries. In 1963, Friedman and a graduate student sparred with two more Keynesian economists, Albert Ando and Franco Modigliani, their debate spread to nearly a hundred pages of the American Economic Review, and led to 26 published papers. In 1967, Friedman locked horns with the MIT economists Paul Samuelson and Robert Salo over their proposition that a little inflation might be harmless. Within months, New York University staged a conference on the topic, in which Friedman forcefully countered that inflation had a dangerous momentum of its own. Later that year, in his Christmas address to the American Economic Association, of which he had just been elected president, Friedman didn't offer bland holiday benediction. Instead, he proposed a radical new concept, the natural rate of unemployment, which would remain even when the economy was in equilibrium. The speech, Burns writes, was the academic equivalent of a high dive. Tobin fired off a rebuttal, but it took him years to back it up with formal modeling, as, recounted, by the economist Thomas Pally. By then, the profession had moved on. In his old age, Friedman could be seen driving around the Bay Area with a license plate that he had customized, with tape, to spell out the quantity theory equation, mv equals py. But that was about as much math as he typically allowed into his public persona. Despite the quantitative turn in his field, Friedman grasped that storytelling would help him bring monetarism outside the ivory tower. And he told stories both through popular books, many of which he co-authored with Rose, and in an influential Newsweek column, Ghostrid by Rose, from 1966 to 1984. In their first general audience book, Capitalism and Freedom, published in 1962, the Freedmans provided a sort of shadow agenda to Kennedy-era progressivism, denouncing everything from social security, a large-scale invasion, and rent control to toll roads in favor of privatized alternatives. It was both the ultimate logic of price theory and a contrarian rejection of the status quo, Burns writes. Friedman also started embracing his role as a campus culture warrior, avant la lettre. At Harvard, in 1964, Friedman launched into a diatribe against the Civil Rights Act. At Haverford College, where Friedman gave a talk on 
Capitalism and Freedom, the student newspaper marveled at how he delivered the opposite of the usual espousal of big government and the welfare state that all intelligent people, especially intelligent economists, are known to support. Friedman's polemicism was buoyed by the new conservative realignment of the 1960s, which included figures and groups like William F. Buckley, Jr., and the John Birch Society. Though Friedman stood under this broad new conservative umbrella, he was promiscuous in his attachments to specific politicians, in part because his theory of getting things done hinged on the government's incompetence. Barry Goldwater, the maverick Republican senator from Arizona, was the first major Friedman curious politician. His run for president, in the 1964 election, coincided with the publication of A Monetary History of the United States, a surprise, at more than 800 pages, runaway hit. Goldwater's run turned the media on to Friedmanomics, but his subsequent loss to Lyndon B. Johnson became a boon for it, too. LBJ's Great Society welfare expansion allowed Friedman to return to his favorite role, the attack dog. Friedman's doomsaying was easy to caricature in the relatively prosperous mid-century. In 1966, Salo, the rival economist, memorably cracked, everything reminds Milton of the money supply. Well, everything reminds me of sex, but I keep it out of the paper. Friedman pushed on. In 1968, he published another influential paper arguing that all government attempts to lower unemployment below the natural rate would lead to inflation. That happened to be right around the time that LBJ's welfare expansion intersected with a civilian tax cut and increased military spending in Vietnam. Inflation skyrocketed. Suddenly, the whole country looked like a natural experiment for Friedman's theories. The economy crashed, and the presidency changed hands to Richard Nixon, who had been a Friedman acolyte since his wilderness years after the Dwight D. Eisenhower vice presidency people started looking to Friedman for answers. In 1969, he was on the cover of Time, profit-like, under the banner Will There Be a Recession? After the 1973 oil crisis, Friedman seemed like the only economist who could explain the devastating stagflation that rocked the US and UK. In 1980, the election of Ronald Reagan in the US and Margaret Thatcher in the UK, both hugely sympathetic to Friedman, ushered in a decade in which his ideas truly became, as Burns writes, conventional wisdom. But, throughout this decade, Mirabilis, Friedman maintained his remarkable tendency to look a gift horse in the mouth. In October, 1979, amid soaring inflation, Paul Volcker, the new chairman of the Fed, announced that the board would stop controlling interest rates, a seemingly direct response to Friedman's August Newsweek column, which argued that Volcker should do exactly that. Volcker's whole tenure was Friedman-inflected, in April, 1980, he said, of Fed policy, that people of monetarist persuasion will believe it more than others. The resulting Volcker shock sent unemployment soaring, but the Fed stuck it out through foul weather and fair, and the economy dramatically recovered in 1984, just in time for Reagan's re-election. What's more, unemployment rates eventually went down, which seemed to prove another key Friedman contention, that there didn't have to be a trade-off between unemployment and inflation. It seemed like monetarism's finest hour. But not if you asked Friedman. In 1983, he lamented the Volcker era as the demise of monetarism, and then, in a 1984 speech, he actually dubbed Volcker anti-monetarist. 
Friedman's quibbles included that Volcker eventually did target interest rates again, a deviation from textbook monetarism, but this was clearly a smaller-scale dispute than the ones Friedman faced in the 1960s, when his proposals were boxed out of democratic administrations. No matter, a fight was a fight. Friedman was not about to give up his lifelong role as Fed critic, Burns writes, even with an inflation hawk at the helm talking about money supply. It was amid these inevitable discontents that Friedman returned to direct, public-facing storytelling. In 1980, he hosted a 10-episode PBS TV series called Free to Choose, on which he cemented the narrative of a 50-year wrong turn in American economic policy since the New Deal. The series was filmed around the world, from New York's Chinatown to India, but perhaps most remarkable are its intercut debates, in which Friedman defends monetarism against its critics. Amid the widespread assimilation of his once-ridiculed ideas, Friedman still craved a showdown, even if it was staged. Burns writes that she arrived at her subtitle, The Last Conservative, with some trepidation, after shooting down other potential labels like liberal, Friedman's own preference, though it also connotes the New Deal progressivism against which he crusaded, neoliberal, which Burns dismisses as academic jargon, and libertarian, never quite right, since Friedman always pushed for state management of the money supply. To Burns, Friedman was a conservative because his prescriptions were often based on historical analysis and because his career followed the arc of post-war American conservatism, with its hybrid blend of libertarian economics, opposition to communism, and defense of traditional values and hierarchies. Her gesture toward a grand bygone era of both politics and economics is also a provocation, in recent years, that time has been eroded by a bipartisan assault on Friedman. This is an odd way for Burns to frame her project. Friedmanomics remains alive and well because Friedman's thought has been so broadly absorbed, rather than attacked, across the political spectrum. Friedman-inspired neoliberalism, as Burns herself writes, became truly powerful only when it captured the Democratic Party in the 1990s, exemplified by the 1992 election of the small government Democrat Bill Clinton. Indeed, despite the posthumous criticisms of Friedman's legacy that Burns painstakingly enumerates, his work still thoroughly shapes our lives. Pandemic-era stimulus checks channeled his concept of a helicopter drop of emergency payments, and inflation's rip-roaring return has reinvigorated talk of monetarism in many corners. But, today, Friedman's once radical counsel to let unemployment rise through higher interest rates is the orthodox solution against which new ones are measured. Burns's off-kilter framing suggests that some of Friedman's underdog worldview may have rubbed off on her. This becomes more evident in later chapters, in which impassive reconstruction slips into impassioned defense. Most striking is her discussion of Cold War Chile, where Friedmanomics was exported in 1975. Since 1973, Chile had been run by Augusto Pinochet, a right-wing dictator who came to power through a U.S.-backed coup against the left-wing president Salvador Allende. Prices were, as Burns notes, rising more than 300% a year when a Santiago university called in Friedman and his colleagues. Pinochet's regime was also, as Burns doesn't mention, responsible for the execution or forced disappearance of at least 3,000 people and the detention of as many as 40,000 more. This is where the so-called Chicago Boys brought the policy recommendations that, in the short run, helped turn Chile into one of the America's best-performing economies. 
Friedman visited Chile in March, 1975, and, in his own words, gave public lectures and seminars on inflation, talked to many citizens from different walks of life and met with numerous government officials, including General Pinochet. This became a liability the following year, when the Pinochet connection dominated press coverage of Friedman's Nobel Prize. Burns doesn't dwell on the effects of Chicago school policies on Chileans, including widespread poverty and skyrocketing inequality, but does lament, at some length, how Friedman's brief meeting with Pinochet was blown up by a highly motivated and organized network, a sort of pre-Twitter mob of the global left, seizing upon a celebrity to gain greater visibility. This episode, and Burns's treatment of it, encapsulate the effects of a long-term trench mentality, both on the part of Friedman, who never really grappled with his policies fallout, he maintained that Chile was an economic miracle, and of Burns, whose final chapters gloss over some of Friedman's worst ideas, like school vouchers, which legislators weaponized to prolong segregation in the South. It also underscores the extent to which earlier chapters unfolded exclusively in the stratosphere, between universities, professors, and officials, in journal pages and at industry gatherings. From 30,000 feet up, Burns writes, of the 1970s. It was impossible to miss how monetarism had transformed not just the academic study of money but the practices of central banking and the politics of inflation. Such a height also precludes this book from taking any meaningful stock of the millions who suffered because of Friedman's theories, from the unemployment of the Volcker shock to Margaret Thatcher's austerity revolution. That's a shame, because economics, still a master discipline of this century, owes its prestige precisely to its unique ability to influence millions of people's lives through theory. Many key economic storytellers, of late, have been heirs of Friedman, to the extent that economists, politicians, and journalists, and, by extension, many laypeople, remain so concerned about inflation. But even the story of how we address inflation remains up for grabs, just look at how, tentatively, we receive, good news, about its abating. Friedman knew this. It may be why he remained a bruiser up until the very end. His own career suggests that only a less sympathetic backward glance at the age of monetarism, like the one he cast at the Depression, will unearth its meaning, that the big lessons from the decades of Friedman's greatest influence are still lying in wait, to be discovered, interpreted, and, indeed, fought over. Diamond Suit